Hello, and welcome to this special bonus episode of the Belong Beyond podcast. I'm your host, Sirka Keen. I'm Projects Coordinator with Access Ballymun. The Belong Beyond project is a collaboration between the Dublin City Libraries and Access Ballymun and is funded by the Dormant Accounts Fund. This podcast is a series of conversations with artists and guests in each of the Dublin City Library branches. This special episode of the podcast is in partnership with the First Fortnight Festival and is recorded in the Access Theatre. First Fortnight takes place at the beginning of January each year and works to challenge mental health prejudice through art and culture. The first two weeks of the year can be a very difficult time and that's likely to be true for more people in 2022 than in most years. From its inception over a decade ago, First Fortnight was envisaged as a sort of light in the dark. It's a really beautiful and vitally important festival and we're really delighted to be partnering with First Fortnight for this episode. The festival runs until the 16th of January, so there's plenty of time to catch some of the excellent programme. You'll find all the details on firstfortnight.ie. I'm joined today by First Fortnight CEO Maria Fleming and our guest, author Anne Ingle. Originally from London, Anne has lived in Dublin since the 1960s and is a mother of eight. In her memoir, Open Hearted, 80 Years of Love, Loss, Laughter and Letting Go, Anne reflects very candidly on everything from mental health to love, heartbreak, writing and ageing. We'll be chatting to Anne about the loss of her husband, mental health, creativity and writing her first book at 82. So without further ado, Anne and Maria, you're very welcome to Axis. Thank you, Sarika. Thank you, Sarika. Maria, I might start with you then. I want to ask you a little bit about First Fortnight. Um, The 2022 festival is in full swing now at this stage. So how is the festival going? Well, thank you very much for the lovely introduction. I actually got a bit emotional when you were introducing the festival there and talking about it being a light in the dark and particularly in 2022. So the festival is going great. We are so delighted that audiences and artists kept faith with us during this difficult time because obviously there's been various restrictions have come in close to and during the festival, which has changed how we're doing things. But uh, as you say, it's never been been more important for us to connect with each other and to have access to the arts for healing. So we're delighted and I have to say I'm very proud of the art sector and our community in Ireland. I am constantly impressed by their resilience, um, something that they have in common with our guest Anne Ingle, the Queen of Resilience. <laughs> um, and uh, it's very humbling actually to be working on a festival with artists who have been knocked so much over the last couple of years and yet are determined to keep going and the positive attitude and the can do and what can we do attitude of artists and the community and organisations and partners that we're working with um, has really inspired me actually and uh, this is my first festival with First Fortnight and I'm delighted, excited, emotional and humbled by it. Well, and indeed, I, I meant to say that this was your first festival, and I think we should start by saying congratulations. Thank you. Um, it's a really beautiful programme, and I, there are plenty of things for people to explore. It started at the beginning of January, but uh, it runs until the 16th. So are there maybe some highlights that you might want to flag to people that they could check out? Yes, I mean, it's a difficult one, uh, similar to Anne when she's writing in her book, you have to love all your children equally, you know. <laughs> so picking out individual uh, 
uh, projects are, is difficult, but I suppose there's a few first fortnight favourites in there, like the event Kishten, which normally would happen in person, um, and Kishten is the Irish word for kitchen, and this year the event actually happened in Susan Quirk's kitchen in Clare, was recorded and will go out uh, online. Uh, so that's a lovely event for people to join with us. Uh, we're partnering again with the Alliance Francaise and the French Embassy in Dublin and there's a film online, Un homme pressé, which is a man in a hurry um, and that's a, a beautiful story and film. There's, there's lots of other films online. We've partnered also with the IFI and there's a beautiful Australian film, Firestarter, which is available online through the IFI's um, channel. But I would really strongly advise people, please go to the website firstfortnight.ie and check out all the events that are happening from now until the 16th of January, um, predominantly online, but some live outdoor events. And also, if you're checking out the events online, because we can't see you and connect with you, we'd still love to hear from you. So let us know what you thought. And there really is something for everybody in the programme. So absolutely, we, we encourage uh, people to visit the, the website and, and see what they can find. Um, and if they haven't discovered First Fortnight, mark it in your calendars because it is a really special way to begin a year every year. So Anne, our, our guest of the moment, thank you very much for being here. Um, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions about your book, I suppose to start with how it came to be. Um, so the very first question is, why did you write it? I have been writing this uh, thing. Well, it's not in the form that it appears now in print, but I've been writing since I retired uh, from full-time work because I wanted to tell my grandchildren the story about their grandfather and about me and my early life because uh, they didn't know it. They, they weren't even born when he died and I just wanted them to tell them that. So I've been fiddling around with it for a good number of years um, and they laugh at me at home while she's writing the story of her life thing. And Roisin then last October, not last October, well, 2020, yeah, last year, the year before last, she wrote um, her columns. You know, she writes the column in the Irish Times. And she said, um, my mother's writing a memoir. And there's some clever person in Penguin saw it <laughs> and uh, got in touch. I did, I have actually written, um, I wrote Rosemary Smith's autobiography, um, Driven, some years back. So I was kind of, I, people kind of knew that I had some kind of ability I didn't know it really myself, but apparently I have. And um, so then this clever lady came to me and said, yes, we want, we'd love you, but we want to know what you're doing now rather than just all about your past life. So I devised this way of doing this by writing 24 essays and I interposed the current with the past um, and I sat down in January of 2021 and I had a deadline of April and I just wrote it. But of course, I had a lot of that stuff already done. But then the new stuff I had to just create. So it was a really interesting exercise for me. And I enjoyed it. Of course, the fact that I didn't think it was going to be any good was a constant trouble. You know, I'll have to give them the money back and all this. I kept <laughs> crying, you know. Uh, but um, it worked out. I think it's worked out very well. People seem to like it. I think it's worked out very well indeed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
What was the process of writing it? You mentioned that you've been writing it for a period of time, but in that, I suppose, that, that strict period from January mm. to April, how did you go about it? Were you, were you really strict with yourself writing every day? Or oh, what was your yes, process? absolutely. I mean, I am always on time for everything. Uh, so there was no way I was going to not meet the deadline. So I would every morning sit down at nine o'clock at the computer. For the first few weeks, I wrote, from nine till one and then when I started to get a bit panicked I went from nine till four with just a break for lunch but of course all the time I was thinking about it I mean I wake up in the middle of the night and say oh yeah I have to tell them that you know and that's the way actually people you, you introduce me as an author when I hear that word I say oh, could that be author no I was just telling a story and the way people have responded to the book, it seems to me they often say it was like having a chat with you. Mm. You know, that, that's one of the, which I think is a wonderful compliment because that's the way I just told it. I didn't write it, I told it, and that, that's the way it um, evolved. So that January to April was hard work, but you know, I, I did a, a, a good job. I, I did a good job from the point of view of the editor when I sent it in to her. She said that um, she was astonished at the way it was so well done there was very little work to be done on it and that she says dream. <laughs> exactly well she said that actually she did say that to me and and then when it was sent to the copy editor for example and the copy ed editor sent back nice words about it you know I said oh my god you know that was a person who was completely disinterested she just had to make sure I didn't spell anything wrong wrongly or incorrectly but she said it was and that was the first inkling I had that I'd done it I've done a good job. <laughs> and what you said about it feeling like a conversation or like a chat is is absolutely true. Um, and I found that I read it from cover to cover and I couldn't put it down. Um, oh. And it really felt like I'd been invited into a conversation with a pot of tea <laughs> or a bottle of wine and here was somebody telling me um, and trusting me with some very um, personal and, and intimate details of their life. So I think you absolutely achieved that um, that that sense of intimacy and and friendship really is mm. what comes out of the book. Um, one of the things you mention, through it, it's a through line throughout the book, is using your voice. And I'm I'm very careful to say using as opposed to finding because I have the sense that you've always had it. <laughs> um, but using your voice and the fact that older people are people are making assumptions about uh, what older people are capable of doing oh, was this part of I suppose was challenging those assumptions part of why you wrote the book well yes when I when I was given this opportunity I I didn't for one moment think of not doing it because um so often you know I even with my own family lovely people that they are I would be very often starting to talk to them and they'd talk over me. And by the time we get back to the point, I'd forgotten what I was going to say. And this happens a lot with older people. They've got such a lot to say. And unfortunately, we very often don't get a chance to do it. I mean, during the course of doing this, I was at Hinterland, which is a festival. And a man came up to me after I'd spoken. He said, do you know what? He said, COVID did a great thing for me, he said, because my mother... Um, is your age and uh, I used to take her out for walks because she had to get out and so I would accompany her on the walks and we'd go out for maybe 20 minutes he said but I learned more about her in those 20 minute walks than I had for my whole life because there she was alone with him and she was being given the opportunity to talk and there are so many older people out there who have got so much to tell us so much wisdom so much 
storytelling, so, so much social history, and I just think it's a tragedy that we don't get to hear more of them. And I'm just very privileged because I could actually write it down, and I'm delighted to have done that. And I hope it encourages anybody, older people out there, to have a go and even just get your voice out there. Let yourself be heard. Step your feet if necessary. Listen to me. <laughs> And you're absolutely right. Um, there's so much in the book and, and in the life of somebody who has lived 82 years that not only that we can learn from and we can pull from as a source of wisdom and a source of advice, maybe, but also there's entertainment and there's crack and there's storytelling. You know, it's a it's a. Uh, the whole package, I suppose, as opposed to simply something that we can learn from, you know, and I think that story about the, the man walking with his his mother, one of the things that COVID forced us to do was slow down. And I wonder if maybe uh, those of us who, who might consider ourselves a young person, whether it's true or not, um, that we move so quickly that we don't take the time to allow someone who moves maybe slightly slower to... Uh, take up the space that they need. Yes, that's true. I mean, I have a walking stick now. The arthritic knee gave, gave way on me and made me tumble over, so now I walk with a stick. But I kind of am proud of the old stick, and I just give it a little bit of a wave here and there to get people to take notice. And it does slow me down, but that's it. I'm an older person. Everything about us kind of changes. We, you know, when I was young, I thought I could do everything. And when I look back at the things I have done in my life, how did I do that? But I was young then. But still, you just take life much slower and everything. You walk more slowly. You, I suppose you think a little slower. And you, you just do everything at a, a more civilised rate, you know. More like the kind of thing that Jane Austen would have done, you know. Yeah, and and maybe there's there's something in that. I think we could probably we could probably all take from that. One of the things you write very candidly about and very intimately about is your relationship with your husband, and that really is everything from the very beginning. And that you describe really beautifully when he steps out of the car and the impact that that had on you immediately it seems um, and everything that that followed your relationship um, and then ultimately his struggle with his mental illness what was what was writing that like for you yes it 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 it, it wasn't easy um, and it's more difficult when people actually ask me about it than when I actually wrote it because um I was um, for Dublin City Libraries, I did a thing in Smock Alley and quite out of the blue, I actually uh, became emotional as, as the man was talking to me. Um, it, it was hard, but at the same time, it's very important. It's very important to tell all those details of what, what happened and how he suffered. That, to me, is a tribute to him. I mean, part of me writing that book, as you see, the dedication is to him because... Um, Whilst I didn't want the book to be a sad book, and it isn't a sad book, as you've you already said, but at the same time, it's important for him to be heard uh, in his uh, the tragedy of, of what happened to him. You know, I, I just feel that very strongly. Hmm. How did you mind yourself when you were writing the book? <laughs> Well, I minded myself with lots of cups of tea, I suppose. Cups of tea, that's the thing. <laughs> nice cup of tea in the morning. Yeah, no, I, I minded myself because I have people around me who mind me and think a lot of me. My children are just really wonderful. And um, every day I'm speaking to one or other of them. I live with my youngest daughter, as you've written about in the book. And uh, she is great to me all the time. And then 
every one of them. They're always on the phone. Eddie from America, he rings me, you know, twice a week, and they're just they're just good people. And they were my they're my comfort. They're my things that keep me going. And they're so proud of me. I can't believe, and even the grandchildren now, they're really telling all their friends about the book and the mothers are, oh, it's, it's, it's brilliant. So I have, I have a whole, you know, a cohort of people around me who keep me going and buoy me up. And actually your, your love for your family and for all of your children and how proud you are of them comes through the book so beautifully. Mm-hmm. And there's so many moments where individually they're each brought out to have a, a moment to themselves in, in the book. Um, did they enjoy that process? Did have you know what, what did they think of it? when Well, they I think they were a bit worried because they know how outspoken I am and how I don't hold back. Uh, so I think they were a little concerned. So um, the first person to read was my eldest daughter, Sarah, because she's uh, very good at proofreading. I didn't want to send anything to the editor that wasn't nearly perfect. So uh, I gave it to her first. And once I got her approval, that was okay because she has very high standards. Um, but she's a very understanding person. So got through her. And of course, I'd been sending snippets of it to Roisin. Oh, is this any good? Is this any good? And she said, Mother, get on with it, you know. Uh, so th- that was that. And then R- R- Rachel was the next one. And so gradually I filtered it down so they all saw it. Um, bits of, well, some of them didn't bother. I don't think the boys weren't quite as enthusiastic, but at least uh, they, they knew they could trust me. Mm-hmm. Although Michael, I think, did read some of oh, for the the audio book, didn't oh, he? That was his thrill. He was so thrilled when I asked him to do that. You'd not believe it. he has this thing in his mind that he should have been an actor, I think. But so when I asked him to read his his, his um, letter that he wrote to me uh, that Gay Byrne thought was so wonderful, and also the letter from his father from prison, um, he did that so well and uh, on the audible version. The audible version, I would recommend to anybody who, who finds difficulty with reading because I've done it myself and Michael has helped me. Yes, so Michael is very happy about that. Of course, they're all still slagging me about he's the favourite. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Michael. <laughs> um, Maria, I want. I know you, you have read the book and are a fan of Anne's. I wanted to, I suppose, pull you in and see what your... Um, experience of reading the book was and, and what your thoughts on it were? Well, full disclosure here now, uh, I have another connection with Anne because my mother and Anne are friends and uh, they're in the same book uh, club. So I, I was a fan of Anne before I read Anne's book and just even more impressed by her after reading the book. And I, you know, read through actually quite a lot of it again last night. I picked it up again before today's discussion and found myself reading it again. And just like you said, I, I felt like I was having a conversation with her and I could hear your voice, Anne, as I was reading it. And I think that's so special for the audible book that people get to hear your voice voice as well. Um, But I suppose what was important for me now through my position in First Fortnight, um, looking at the book, was the absolute beautiful honesty and courage of Anne sharing the story about her experience with um, her husband. And in First Fortnight, uh, what we're looking to do is to challenge the stigma attached to mental health, because as so beautifully described by Anne in the book, it's difficult enough, you know, managing mental health, whether it's your own or relatives. But the stigma just adds to that. That difficulty for everybody 
if you could read Anne's book and then picture reading it again if there was no stigma attached to mental health mm. and the help that would have been available then to Anne, her children and all the family if it was possible to look at mental health not as something in any way shameful or any way to be hidden but something that we could talk about in the same way Anne talks about the arthritis in her knee. If we could sit here and say, I have you know, I, I have a mental illness, this is how it impacts me, this is what I need to do to help me for it. And if all of society accepted that, what a difference that would make. And I think Anne has used her voice in a beautiful way to show that, you know, and uh, her courage and her honesty and her vulnerability just leap off the page at you. But like you say, Anne, not in a depressing way at all. It is so positive and uplifting. And I think the service that it has done for Anne, her family, but for other people who are in a similar situation. And like when I'm reading it, I'm also thinking, you know, this happened a period of time ago, but how much has actually changed? Mm -hmm. How much would be different for somebody or a family that experienced that today? We would like to hope that their experience would be significantly better, but there's still a long way to go. So uh, from all of us in First Fortnight, a huge thank you to Anne for using her voice to support that story. I hope you're right um, that things have changed because it was very difficult. You couldn't go out and tell people, oh, my husband's um, imagining things. It just wasn't done. Mm. And if you did, they'd turn away. Yeah. They just didn't want to hear. I mean, people just didn't want to know. Uh, it's, it's very, very sad. They would do things for me, but not because of what was happening to me, because they saw I was in distress, maybe. But we could not discuss what was wrong with him. And it was a very frightening time for me to be so alone. And the children were so young that I couldn't really share much with them, but they could obviously see what was going on. But there was very little support well, I mean, the fact that I didn't even know what was wrong with him and they didn't even tell me what was wrong with him. I had to go and find that out. I had to ask questions. There was nobody to help me. And I do very much hope that the situation has changed. But I, I do think that it is a lonely place when you are um, associated closely with someone with a mental illness. It is a lonely place. And I think we need to strive to make it more not that way, to be talked to. Mental health should be talked about just the same as, as you say, my arthritis or my bad eyes. I mean, it's just one of those things. It happens yeah. to everybody. And it's, in, in most cases, it's perfectly curable. You know, that, that you can get through this. There's medication, there's therapy, there's all sorts of things. And um, this cognitive behavioural therapy, which does so much for people. There's loads of things out there. So... Nowadays, it wouldn't be such a, a terrible story as I had to tell, and unfortunately... Um, but I, d I don't regret telling it all, because obviously it's, it, it can be of help to somebody. Totally, yeah. I think mm. definitely that, you know, shining a light on something, so long as we keep it hidden and dark and secret, it can't improve. But if you shine a light on it, you know, it definitely... Uh, can improve and like, research that we've done in first fortnight um, shows that still today people are slow to seek help because of the stigma attached to mental health and like you say and so many of the illnesses now are completely treatable mm. and actually much better if people seek treatment early, early rather than yes. later yeah mm. and yeah. if it's the, if it's just the shame and the stigma that stop them asking for help you know the same with the, if we take again your poor arthritic knee which is getting <laughs> the air <laughs> <Don't> <laughs> <lie>. <laughs> 
But the earlier you go to get help for that, the more they can do for you. Yes, and it's course. exactly the same with, with mental health, you know. So And I just like an arthritic knee, it can happen to anybody and to really anybody. at any stage of your life. There's no um there's nobody who is immune from their their mental health and, and mental illness. It, it happens to everybody or could happen to everybody. Of course. Yeah, and which one of us is normal anyway? That's for sure. <laughs> <Yeah>, define normal. <laughs> I I want to ask you, Anne, how does it feel now when you hear from Maria and when you hear from people saying that it helps? Oh, that that is wonderful. I mean, I didn't really know what I was doing when I wrote that book. I, I didn't write a book to inspire anybody or to help anybody. I just told my story as, as honestly as I could. Oh, I get great, um, great pleasure from knowing that it could help anybody. I mean, it's helped. I've had letters from older women saying, oh, look, you've put us on the map, you know. And I've had letters from... Um, one man wrote to me and said he was going to recommend the book for his all-male book club, which was wonderful to think that men are reading about this little old lady as well, you know. So I get great pleasure. And if it helped anybody from the point of view of their mental health, well, that would be the icing on the cake because that is so important. We need to talk about it. We need to acknowledge those people going through a period in their life you know, that, that it makes their mind stable. We need to give them every help. And if my book did anything at all, in any small way, that would be worth everything. <laughs> all those hours at the typewriter. <laughs> or at the computer, I should say. God, the typewriter's long ago, isn't it? Um, it, it is a, a really beautiful, I suppose, testament to your uh, family and to your love with your husband and that relationship that you had and to you as a as a person your bravery as Maria mentioned and your honesty and your your generosity really I find it is a, an incredibly generous piece of work because you don't shy back from talking about really everything and anything um I just uh, not to be to be fangirling, but it is really a spectacular. <laughs> oh, fangirl away, fangirl away! <laughs> really a spectacular piece of work. So, for anybody who's listening who maybe hasn't yet read it, I would really, really encourage you to do so. Either to to buy the book and read the book, or there's an audio book available. Um, so it is definitely and it's worth in the library. I'm told, and it's in the library, of course. <laughs> I did actually want to ask you. You mentioned your bad eyes, oh, um, God. and audio books. What was the discussion? I suppose, you know, to, to learn or to, to realise that your eyesight is is uh, failing and then to discover that there are audiobooks. What was that like? Well, you see, the eyesight failing, there you go. That's to do with mental health too because I was absolutely devastated. When I got to the bus stop and I looked up to see what the time the next bus was coming and I couldn't see it, that to me was a terrible terrible moment in my life and the National Council for the Blind have have uh, counsellors there and so they helped me through that period when I had to come to terms with it so you know mental health that, that's mental health too isn't it so it is it was really difficult but everybody helped me the National Council for the Blind helped me a lot um uh, to get a little device that I could read things with. But I also have this enormous television screen, which is my laptop monitor. And so it's amazing what you can do. And, you know, the little ways that you can press control and add add uh, symbol to make the things come bigger. But still, I have trouble now with um, the actual uh, 
trip at the top of your, when you're writing in Microsoft Word, it's very faint. So I, I mean, I, I, I do um, have troubles with it. Yes, well, audio books are just amazing. I mean, I mean I'm actually in the middle of reading um, The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins, which was actually the first detective uh, novel that was ever written and it's 20 hours long and it's wonderful and so I do my knitting and and listen to that uh, I just love Audible now and especially if you get a good narrator I mean it's, it's like a theatrical experience you know it's, it's wonderful so um I I don't listen to audio books that I don't like the sound of the voice <laughs> but uh, mostly they're done by very very competent people and uh, the recent one I've read was Iron Annie, which requires a Dundalk accent. And the young lady, I think it was Eleanor Fitzsimmons, I'm not sure of her name, but Eleanor anyway was her first name. And she had it right like that, you know? So listening to Iron Annie and that Dundalk accent, that it's a brilliant book. If you haven't read it, you should get a hold of it. It was a wonderful experience. I don't think it would have been the same to read it. Uh, because, as I say, it was a, a theatrical experience. So Audible has given me a new lease of life. Today I had um, sent to me in the post from Eileen Casey, who'd written an article about the book in Senior Times, which she sent me a copy of, but she also sent me two of her little poetry books. And it really makes me sad because I'm going to have to get my magnifying glass out uh, laboriously to read those poems, which I'm delighted to have. I might get my grandchild to read some of them to me, which is another thing I do from time to time. They're always reading things. So I get letters sometimes that I say, instead of going to the trouble of getting, I say, oh, read that to me. So that's that's a wonderful thing too. Uh, so I'm not letting it get me down. I am annoyed with, me, with it. But um, do you know what? I'm alive, am I? Am I here talking to you? <laughs> and you certainly don't let it hold you back because uh, to be able to to write a book um, and to have it as a as an editor's dream to that standard when it's written is no mean feat. Um, so it's and it, it is really impressive um, to share that because no more than. Um, mental health I think we're very slow to talk about things like a failing eyesight failing hearing um, and so even something as simple as saying in the book that I have macular degeneration mm. I think that that probably um, will spark a, a hint of recognition with a lot of people who might oh, be reading it or, or and tomorrow actually the 6th of January tomorrow is yes I'm going to get another injection in my eye I get injections every six weeks into my eye which helps, it doesn't make it better, but it stops it getting any worse. So I'm continually working on that and uh, progressing with that, as it were. <laughs> yeah, I can't make it better, but it's just not getting any worse right now, which is wonderful. I've become very self-conscious about emails that I sent to Anne since she described the big telly, because <laughs> I picture like every word I say, I type is coming up on this big telly <laughs> magnifying room. So I kind of feel my emails should be more, you know, to the point and important <laughs> on a large screen. Yes, well, that's right. When I write emails now, I... I tend to make them quite small, sh short, and I don't do any of this dear somebody, which is really very old-fashioned, I find, when people do this dear somebody, what are they on about? No, I usually try to incorporate their name in the first line. I'd say, thank you, Maria, rather than dear Maria, you see, and I think that should be, uh, and, and at the end, I just say Anne with a little kiss <laughs> to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I think Anne... Uh, with a little kiss, Anne, thank you very much 
for being here and to Maria, thank you for being here. This has been a really beautiful conversation which reflects, I think, the beauty of the book and the power of the book. Um, it's been it's been uh, a privilege really to speak to you and to hear from you about the writing of it and about the process. And as I said, not to labour the point too much, but if anybody has not yet discovered the book, we highly recommend it. <laughs> and if anyone has not yet discovered First Fortnight, we recommend that too. Um, both really important and lovely pieces of work and, and things that can brighten up what is often a very grim beginning of the year. Um, so thank you both for being here. Thank you. Could I just say thank you to Anne as well on behalf of First Fortnight. We really appreciate your book and you taking the time to chat to us today. And can I just say again, yet again, I'm laughing here at Anne's surprise at how good the book <laughs> is because I had the very great privilege given the fact that it was reduced numbers of being at the launch of the book and we were all roaring laughing. Anne at the launch kept going, I think it's really quite good. <laughs> a lot of people are telling me it's really quite good. Like at this stage, she's practically like an award-winning author and she's <laughs> launching the book telling people, I think you should read it. I hear it's very good. <laughs> so uh, almost a year on and your, your continued surprise at how brilliant you are and your book is, is really tickling me. So thank you from First Fortnight and from me. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking to you. I want to thank my guests for joining me on the Belong Beyond podcast and the staff at the libraries for their warm welcome. The Belong Beyond project is a collaboration between the Dublin City Libraries and Axis Ballymun and is funded by the Dormant Accounts Fund. You'll find details of this podcast and all the other elements of the Belong Beyond project on the Dublin City Libraries and Axis Ballymun websites as well as across our social media channels. Thank you. A full list of podcast guests is available on the Dublin City Libraries and Access Ballymun websites. This podcast was recorded by Clodagh Mooney Duggan and Jer Kellett, edited by Stephen Crawley, sound design by Derek Conaghy.